Welcome to Finance Lab, a podcast for the intellectual investor, powered by Dalbar, an independent financial research firm dedicated to improving the investor experience. Finance Lab is where real investors get practical insight and perspective from real experts. In each episode, we'll dive deep into the fascinating world of finance, exploring topics like investing, financial planning, market trends, and everything in between. We're here to empower you with the tools and knowledge necessary to make informed financial decisions. Hello and welcome to Finance Lab. I'm your host, Corey Clark, Chief Marketing Officer at Dalbar. The topic of this show is one that is near and dear to my heart, uh, and that's investor behavior. I say it's near and dear to my heart because for the last 30 years, Dalbar has done extensive research uh, in the area of investor behavior and found that it has, unfortunately, a significant impact on investor returns. Quite frankly, it's a topic that doesn't get discussed enough. Uh, and our guests today agree with that notion. Uh, and they are John and Alex Sutsos. And they're going to share with us today five common behavioral mistakes that they have seen in their practice. Uh, and most importantly, how to avoid them to earn greater returns. John and Alex, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Corey. Thank you, Corey, for having us. John is a portfolio manager at MedWealth Financial Services, operating through IPC Securities Corporation through Mississauga, Ontario. He joins us today with over 35 years of experience providing professional wealth management services to high net worth families. He was recently named one of Canada's top advisors by the Globe and Mail in conjunction with Shook Research and was a 2023 Wealth Professional Award Excellence Awardee for Portfolio and Discretionary Manager of the Year. Alex is an investment advisor at MedWealth Financial Services, also operating through IPC Securities Corporation in Ontario. Alex joined MedWealth Financial team in 2022 after working as senior management consultant at KPMG within their deal advisory group. Alex obtained his MBA from the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, where he graduated as a member of the Dean's List and was named as a Bregman Scholar. He also holds a Bachelor of Commerce from the University of Toronto and has completed Level 1 of the CFA in addition to obtaining all of the Canadian securities credentials. So to get started, I would say, in, in, in my humble opinion, investor behavior is becoming more and more important uh, as technology and the industry changes. Uh, over the past several years, we've seen the rise of do-it-yourself investment platforms, uh, that give individuals the ability to manage their own portfolio in a low-cost manner. Um, but Alex, why is it that despite having the same tools, despite paying lower fees, investors fail to achieve the kind of success that's promised by these platforms? Absolutely, uh, Corey. You know, while these platforms provide most individuals with the tools to create and manage investment portfolios themselves, uh, they often lack the perspective of an emotionally detached professional. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, most people lack the emotional discipline required to make difficult decisions about their investments. You know, as humans, we suffer from a variety of behavioral biases and um, which are triggered by our emotions that result in irrational and financially damaging investment choices. Uh, Warren Buffett is quoted as saying, you know, to invest successfully, one doesn't need a stratospheric IQ. Uh, what's needed is a sound intellectual framework for making decisions and the ability to keep emotions from corroding that framework. Unfortunately, when you're using these platforms and using these tools, you know, as an investor, you're subject to your own emotional swings and 
uh, and vagaries, and that can uh, sometimes impede you from making a sound intellectual decision. Uh, people make decisions based on current information, but they don't uh, uh, create for themselves a, a proper entry and exit strategy, and that can result in uh, the erosion of uh, rate of return over an extended period of time. So when we talk about investor behavior or behavioral biases, there are a lot of them, aren't there? But are some more important to, to be aware of than others? Yeah, there's uh, there are plenty of, uh, of different uh, biases that exist, and there are, uh, depending on uh, which behavioral scientist uh, you subscribe to, there are uh, hundreds of uh, behavioral biases which have been observed. Uh, but there are five that we uh, commonly see in our uh, in our practice, and so the the first one is familiarity bias, and so familiarity bias involves investing only with and in areas that you're familiar with, such as geography or companies you recognize, such as telecom stocks or bank stocks or uh, familiar institutions like the uh, big five banks here in Canada or the magnificent seven in the United States. Uh, so that's the, the that's the first one. The second one is recency bias. Uh, what this is, is the overemphasizing of recent events to explain the near future rather than placing information into historical t- context. Uh, we see this in many areas of life and investing is no different. You know, for example, if we had a market crash last year, therefore we expect another crash is imminent. And that, you know, based on historical precedent may not be the case. Um, so number three would be endowment bias. Uh, and that's a, uh, a situation where investors psychologically value current investments over investments they don't own. Uh, and we see this play out in, uh, uh, like the other biases, in many areas of life. You know, whether it be fantasy football, where you think your players are going to turn around and have a, a great second half of the season, it's the same thing when it comes to investing. You know, investors look at what they currently own, and because they selected it, because it already exists in their portfolio, they tend to place greater potential value on the investments that they already have, rather than what might be out there. Number four is inertia or status quo bias. Uh, and this is uh, a bias where uh, faced with new information or a wide variety of options, investors choose to keep things the same and thus create an opportunity cost for missing out on best, better investment strategies. And that ties a little bit back into what I was talking about with the endowment bias. Uh, and so, you know, this is a, a bias that we see oftentimes when investors come, when investors are making decisions about not only uh, investments or securities that they hold within their portfolio, but even the decision to change strategies and have a professional manage their money instead. So it can create an oppor- a situation where the, uh, the investor is afraid of change and the, the effort that is required in order to make a change is so high in their mind that they miss out on better investment opportunities or better advice for the sake of avoiding that uncomfortable uh, and difficult decision. Finally, uh, the fifth and uh, the fifth uh, common uh, bias that we observe is regret aversion bias, and so this is the uh, the decision or the uh, the lack of decision. So people avoid changes for fear of making the wrong decision. Uh, we see this a lot of times in uh, in investing, where you know people get in, in a world where we have an infinite amount of information at our fingertips. It's it's all very easy to access and readily available. People can get overwhelmed, and so what they do is they they get overwhelmed by the poss- the infinite possibilities, and the uh, they paralyze themselves in in fear of making the wrong decision. That's me right there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're not alone. Don't worry, Corey. <laughs> many many people are in the same boat, so it's uh, it's a very common one, and not one that anyone should feel bad about. But just understand that it exists, and and try and take steps to mitigate that uh, that behavior. 
Great. Uh, and and I, me- I mentioned the, the do-it-yourself platforms right at, at the beginning. And, you know, in a lot of ways that gives investors the freedom to trade and, and, and behave in a certain way, unconstrained in a way that really wasn't available in the past. Uh, I think everyone's aware, at least generally, uh, of what happened with the meme stocks. And, you know, in, in retrospect, we look back at it and, and we say, well, that's clearly irrational. Um, but that's human behavior. You know, there's a there's a hurting mentality, and so that that got me thinking of of, a, of another behavior that that I know is uh, I've, I've been hearing more about lately, uh, and that's FOMO, fear of missing out. And I think that might be what you know what was at at play there with the meme stocks. But c- could you talk a little bit about the fear of missing out? Um, and I, I'd say more specifically, how is how has it become more prevalent given the changes that we're seeing in our world today? Yeah, so uh, FOMO is born out of uh, people's herd mentality. We uh, we are, as human beings, we're herding creatures. Oftentimes when I'm uh, with a, a new client, they will ask the question, well, um, I can't decide what I want to do. What, do the rest of your cli- what are the rest of your clients doing in this situation? And this is just our innate tendency to want to make sure we don't step out of line with a herd. I was listening to a podcast recently and the individual was saying he was uh, filming a scene for a documentary and he walked into a a herd of sheep. And as he walked into the herd of sheep, he said all the sheep, uh, sheep's eyes were focused on him walking into the herd. And after looking, glancing at him, they then started looking left and right to see if uh, who among the herd are going to make the first move. And no one made the first move. They just all kept looking left and right to see what was happening. And it's, it's just the nature of people. We want to know what's our, what's our neighbor doing? What's our, uh, our, our cousin doing? What's our uh, uncle doing in this situation? We don't want to be different, uh, lest we make a mistake on our own and be uh, ostracized from the herd. So people feel more comfortable that it's better to make a mistake uh, within a group than to stand apart from the group and uh, in an attempt to, be, uh, to achieve something better and fail in doing so. Now, do, do you feel that maybe it, is it more that they feel it's a safer thing to do or it's more likely to be the right decision because others are doing it or that they'll feel more safe if they were to fail because everyone else did the same thing as well or, or some sort of combination of the two? Do, do you have a, a feeling on, on what you feel is at, more at play there? Ultimately, I believe that the reason people uh, are looking at each other is they, they do not want to fail independently. Uh, misery loves company, and uh, if, if, for example, let's talk about the investment industry. The investment industry um, in North America is such that you have packaged investment structures, and uh, when you seek out guidance from a professional, you will typically complete a questionnaire, and that questionnaire will lead you to a particular asset mix, whether it's sixty percent stocks, forty percent bonds, or something. Um, of that nature. Can you do better than that? Obviously, there's an opportunity to do something different in an attempt to uh, achieve better results. But a lot of people don't uh, pursue that because they don't want to take the risk that if I fail, I'm going to fail alone. And then I'm going to look stupid. I'd rather do the same thing as everyone else. And if everyone fails together, then I don't feel so bad. It's just like the typical market correction. If the market drops 25%, 
and you speak to your um, colleagues at work and you say, oh, my portfolio is down 25%. They say, yeah, I know we're, we're all down 25 because the market's gone down. Well, then you don't feel so bad. But if someone at work says, oh, my portfolio is up 30%, how are you doing? And then if you're not up 30%, you feel like, hey, I'm not part of the, the cool crowd here. I'm, I'm obviously doing something that's not right. And I, 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 that's a very uncomfortable feeling. So people just prefer to, to do what their peer group are doing in order to um, not stand out in a negative way. So true. And that's what makes this topic, in my mind, so fascinating because in so many of these behaviors, we can see objectively that they're irrational, but we can also see so easily that they're so true because we we do you know that we're you know victims of them ourselves. So it, it's this dichotomy of of you can see the irrationality of it, but you also see the inevitability of it if you know if you if you're not doing something to help mitigate it. Um, yeah, that, that's a great point. Uh, what what I'd like to do is 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 take a quick break. But when when we get back, I know that you have some examples of how these behaviors play out. We've been sort of talking about them in the abstract, um, but I'd like to talk a little bit about how you've seen these play out in your practice over the years. So we'll get to that right after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Dalbar. Dalbar is the nation's leading financial services market research firm and is committed to raising the standards of excellence in financial services. For more podcast episodes, visit financelab.dalbar.com. And now, back to the episode. Welcome back to Finance Lab. We are here with John and Alex Sutsos talking about investor behavior. Uh, before the break, we talked about some various behavioral biases uh, and how, uh, how they manifest themselves. Um, but what I'd like to do now is, is talk about how they manifest in real life, what what does it actually look like? And I know that with uh, the vast experience that you have, I'm sure you have a lot of uh, stories and examples of how these have played out in the past that I think would be really helpful uh, for the listeners uh, to to really hear what what these sound like in real life. You know, uh, outside of sort of a, an, an academic uh, exercise, what what is it? What is it really like? Um, and and so, John, I'm curious, any any anecdotes that you have that would um, highlight any of these behaviors that we discussed before the break? Well, certainly I have, uh, with um, almost 40 years of experience, I have many anecdotes. One that stands out the most to me is a client I had uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, who uh, came in uh, to initially um, set up his account and I reviewed his overall portfolio. He was an, an executive with a company called Bombardier. The Bombardier still exists today. Uh, they make uh, planes and trains and, uh, and other forms of transportation. And I noted in reviewing his overall asset mix that 75% of his assets were uh, was held in the, the Bombardier stock. So I said to him, um, I said, I, I, you have 70 three quarters of your wealth in one business. I said, I, regardless of how good that business is, it really is imprudent to have three quarters of your wealth in this one company. His response to me at the time, and keeping in mind that I was a much younger person at the time, and he was uh, significantly older than I was. He was at that time, he was 
about 60 years old. And obviously I was in my uh, late thirties at this point. And he said to me, um, uh, listen, young man, uh, I work as an executive with this company on my computer that sits on my desk in the bottom right hand corner is the ticker symbol for Bombardier stock. And uh, when I'm at work, I know exactly what's going on with a, with a stock on a second-by-second -second basis. So, uh, as an executive, I also have access to the company's order book, and I see what's going on with the company's business. So if anything were to go wrong with this business, I would be among the first people to see it and have the time to take action. My response to him was, well, that may, may be so. However, there are times when you cannot respond. For example, you might be away on vacation, you might go to the bathroom. <laughs> For, you know, you're just not always in front of your computer. And this is obviously the, the days before handheld phones and, uh, and iPads and that type of thing. And, and so there's an opportunity for you to miss information and, and the market moves very quickly and you don't always have time to respond. And he said, well, you know what, leave it with me. I'm not worried about it. Uh, you just go ahead with your analysis and give me the recommendation on the other quarter of my portfolio. Um, I said, well, how, how far away from retirement are you from, based on your opinion? He says, oh, I think I, with 10% more growth in my assets, I'll be there. I said, okay, well, I think we can achieve that objective without the uh, extraordinary focusing on this one stock. Um, he said, don't worry about it. We're going to carry on like this. So this was probably the spring of 2001. Uh, summer goes by, and then one early September morning in 2001, uh, we all know what happened. Uh, the attack in New York City occurred uh, before 9 a.m., very dramatic event. And uh, what happened after that attack? Well, the first thing that happened was uh, all the airplanes in North America were grounded. And so anyone who's in the investment business is going to be thinking, hmm, how is that going to be impacting potentially? Obviously, I don't think anyone was thinking about this at the, at the time of the attacks, but the market never opened that day. And that's the important point. It never opened because the attacks occurred before the 9.30 a.m. start time for the stock market. And the market remained closed. And as the attacks were on a Tuesday, the market remained closed the remainder of the week and did not reopen until the following Monday. So after the first couple of days to absorb the shock of the 9-11 of attacks, uh, I think you know, Wall Street began to think, well, what are the implications of this? And one of the implications are, will people continue to uh, use air airline travel as extensively as before, given uh, uh, the nature of these attacks? And so Monday morning, the stock market opens up and the Bombardier stock, which was trading around uh, at the time, I'm going from memory now, about $19 a share, gaps down to about $11 a share. So we saw... Uh, uh, an approximately 40% elimination of, of wealth of this one business instantly. There, was no there were no trades in between those two prices. They just gapped down. So the, the previous trade uh, when the market was operating was at 19 or so. And uh, when the market reopens, it's at, uh, the first bid comes in at 11 and there's there are no other bids. So this person's wealth is instantly cut by a, a significant amount and the market continued to bounce around and it started to come up and the overall market was down 7% at the time and it took a, uh, a few months before it recovered that 7% loss. 
I subsequently saw that person several months later for a follow-up meeting. And given that he was an older individual, and I, I wanted to uh, demonstrate respect. I wasn't going to say, I told you so. Uh, so instead, I took a deep breath as he sat down. And I said, so what are you, uh, you going to do with your Bombardier stock? And he took a deep breath and said, well, I think I'm going to wait for it uh, to come back up to $16 a share. At that, by that time, it had recovered somewhat up to about $14 a share. And I said, well, hang on a second. What leads you to believe that the next $2 per share move is going to be up to 16 and not down to 12 At this point, he became agitated and he, he took the, his glasses down the, uh, the bridge of his nose and said, listen, young man, uh, I've been around a long time. And uh, surely to goodness, uh, Bombardier stock, which was trading uh, last year at over $22 a share, certainly will inevitably go back up there. <laughs> I said, well, that's not the way the stock market works. Uh, perhaps the overall market might, in, might eventually get back up to its previous highs. But are you, have you ever heard of a company named Polaroid? Polaroid peaked in 1972, and there was a big uh, uh, market crash that took two years to play out until 1974. To this day, 2001, Polaroid stock has not recovered. So just because the overall market has the capacity to recover doesn't mean every individual stock will recover. He looked at me and he shook his head and said, no, nah, I think I'm going to wait. I'm not going to do anything right now. So this was, uh, once again, as I was saying, uh, several months after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, the following August, I think it was the following August of 2002, um, when, uh, U.S. Airways, I believe, uh, announced its bankruptcy and Bombardier stock, which was still hovering up around that, that range of $14, $15 a share, plummeted within a span of months to about $2 a share. And to this day, it has never recovered. The company still exists. They still make uh, uh, private jets and they make uh, trains, but the, the, the stock has never recovered and done a reverse split to keep it trading at a decent price but uh unfortunately i never heard from him again he uh, transferred out his account i guess he didn't want to face me again and it's a it's unfortunately a very tough lesson for him to learn because he he basically lost nearly three quarters of his wealth due to his familiarity bias with the company that he worked for yeah that i'm glad you you said that because i was i was sort of thinking through you know what are the lessons to be learned from that what are the biases and there are probably you know in a lot of cases there's multiple biases at play at the same time but uh, but yeah, you hit the nail on the head it was it was the familiarity bias because that was the company that he was familiar with. I guess a lot of other uh, other takeaways. I want, or I wonder, uh, you know, if there was like a, a, a hurting mentality at play too, and that perhaps you know, if a lot of your colleagues are highly invested in that stock and they're they're doing that and they're making a lot of money, well, you don't, you don't want to miss out on what everyone else is making. <laughs> yeah, of course, and, and 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 we saw this again at play in the United States with Enron and World. World, uh, world, uh, Worldcom, yeah, yeah. Back in the uh, early two thousands, and uh, when the company went bankrupt, so many employees were invested invested in the stock, and their their net worths were decimated as a result. So, familiarity bias. Just because you you give your uh, labor capital to your to your employer doesn't mean you should also invest your your personal financial capital in the company. 
Any other stories that would highlight some of the other? Oh, there's lots of stories. Uh, you're, you may have heard of a, a company called uh, Nortel Networks. Uh, Nortel Networks is a Canadian company. It was a subsidiary originally of Bell, Bell Canada. Um, it was the research lab for Bell Canada, and uh, they were uh, growing so successfully that uh, Bell Canada in the late 90s spun it off to trade on its own. And so all shareholders of Bell Canada received shares in Nortel Networks. Now, Nortel um, was, uh, was trading at a time when the internet was uh, coming aboard and uh, all the excitement around technology. So this stock just took off and just kept growing and growing and growing. It grew so rapidly that it became 25% of the Toronto Stock Exchange, which is obviously disproportionate to the, uh, to the company, uh, to the overall market's value. And we kept warning our clients that uh, Nortel is overpriced and it, uh, it should be trimmed back. Uh, one particular client was a widow that I was dealing with whose husband had originally assembled a portfolio of stocks and I had taken over and I had been encouraging her to restructure. And uh, Nortel uh, had peaked at, uh, at over, I, I'm going from memory again, uh, $150 a share or, or something of that nature. And it started to collapse in the early 2000s. So the tech market, as you're aware, peaked in um, March of 2000. And then it started to collapse and the NASDAQ index eventually fell over 80%. Nortel uh, began its uh, dramatic fall during that time. And as it was coming down, I, I kept calling her and saying, listen, um, things are not going well. You need to liquidate your Nortel securities and uh, redeploy the money elsewhere. She says, no, my husband bought, bought this stock and I can't sell it. And uh, <laughs> I said, um, well, if your husband were alive today, uh, he would be reevaluating the stock and, and uh, making the decision to perhaps at a minimum trim it back. Um, she she did not want to let it go because I think it was her connection to her spot to her late spouse. Several phone calls later, eventually the stock just kept sliding it and uh, at, at about twenty five dollars a share after she had lost probably uh, three quarters of of the assets value. She finally relented and and sold it and and luckily I persisted because the stock eventually became worthless and she's lucky she got out what she did. But it's it's also uh, this is a, a lesson in the inertia or status quo bias uh, or the endowment bias where people value investments they already own uh, versus something they don't. Uh, but also there was that emotional anchor that was uh, kept her in it from uh, as a result of her husband being the original person who, who uh, purchased that stock. So in these cases, you know, one of the in the stories that, that you provided, I, I, one of the common denominators here that they're they're exhibiting uh investor behavior or biases that are that are harmful um but they have a sounding board they have somebody who's able to provide them with with feedback uh and i and i wanted to ask a little bit about how we can how we can solve for this because you know it is human behavior it's in our dna so to speak but that doesn't mean that we're stuck with it or that we're doomed to shoot ourselves in the foot. I mean, there are things that we can do to protect ourselves from these biases. And, and one of those is, is to work with an expert. Uh, I know the advisors that I speak to on a day-to-day basis are including these behavioral topics in their conversations uh, more and more. But I wanted to get your perspective of how working with a financial expert can help mitigate uh, these behavioral biases. That's a great uh, question, Corey, and a great comment. You know, uh, 
in 2016, there was a study based on uh, an Ipsos Reid survey, uh, which concluded that after having adjusted for nearly 50 socioeconomic and attitudinal differences, investors with advice were found to accumulate 290% or 3.9 times more assets after 15 years than comparable non-advised investors. Uh, you know, we saw two examples of, uh, of what happened. You know, one where, uh, uh, as my dad mentioned, a client uh, chose not to heed his advice and uh, as a result suffered the consequences. And then conversely, a situation where uh, an investor or client did and was thankfully saved from losing a, a significant portion of their assets. And so you can see right there a, a very clear example, an anecdotal example of how using that advice, taking somebody else's objective opinion. And it, we're not just talking about some random person off the street. We're talking about someone who's got the benefit of hindsight and uh, years of experience and understanding of uh, how the financial markets work to help guide and shepherd people through difficult situations and market volatility and provide them with an objective perspective on what they should be doing with their with regards to their investments. Uh, I, I'm reminded of the fact that uh, LeBron James spends 4% of his annual salary on uh, on professional uh, services so that he can maintain his body and keep playing at a, at a uh, at an elite level in the NBA. And so it just goes to show, you know, even the the best of the best in the world, the best at their craft are willing to spend money in order to ensure that they remain at their their peak performance because they understand that they are not capable of doing it all themselves. You know, 4% of a, a $44 million salary is $1.6 million on an annual basis. So it, it, it is definitely a value add for many investors to rely on and work with a financial expert. That, I don't know if you want to chime in as well. Yeah, so people get caught up. Uh, in terms of management fees, and, and there are many uh, organizations out there who are offering to do trades for uh, $9 uh, per trade, or in some cases less than that, or no cost for the trades at all. And people feel as though by, by virtue of saving on trades or saving on a management fee, they think they're going to uh, uh, make more money. And uh, what they don't consider is the extensive research of Belmar, which shows that there's a 3% annual um, hit on performance based on investors being unable to emotionally detach from their investment decisions. And uh, this is why it's dangerous for people to try to do it on their own, because there's just too many things uh, that affect their decision-making process. And uh, the evidence is clear in Dalbar's research we, uh, uh, in our particular practice, we have a very unique uh, management structure that uh, does allow us to provide uh, a result to our clients that uh, has provided extraordinary returns. And uh, we more than make up the um, management fee that is, uh, that is charged to clients. So the, the lesson to clients is uh, they, they should be uh, looking around at several uh, companies to identify good firms to work with. But at the end of the day, they need to recognize they need professional guidance. Uh, it's just because you can do it yourself doesn't mean you should do it yourself. Uh, for Let's take the healthcare industry, for example. Uh, I'm sure you can go to a medical supply store and, and buy the same instruments that a dentist buys, but are you going to actually go home, look in the mirror and try and pull your own tooth out? Uh, obviously, that would be very painful and you wouldn't want to even uh, begin that. But uh, the investment industry, because uh, the tools have been given to everyone to access, uh, many people think, well, you know, I'm a smart person. I can do this. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has to do with the emotional detachment aspect. And, and people need to remember that. 
Yeah, you you mentioned the the Dalbar study. I, I think one of the one of the takeaways that that is always resonated with me from that study for, for for many years is as a as an investor, you can make the right decision more often than not. But if that one bad decision is bad enough, it'll wipe out so many good decisions. So you you, you could you could make the right decision eight out of ten times. Uh, and what we've seen is is there are times when investors generally are in the right direction, but it doesn't matter because when they make a mistake, that mistake hurts them 10 times more than each of the correct decisions helped them. And so they, and that's where that gap uh, comes from. Well, it's usually during periods of market turbulence where the mistakes will happen. So late last year in 2022, I had... Uh, uh, a client who uh, bailed out uh, uh, precisely at the bottom of the market. They're at the market bottom in two spots in uh, late June and uh, mid-October. And on that first bottom, that client bailed out. And in October, I had another client who phoned me and said, my son is selling all of his uh, securities. Uh, should I be selling mine? And I said, absolutely not. I said, what we're seeing now is a second bottom, and you should absolutely hang on and not worry about this. The market's going to recover. And she decided to listen to me. Her son, uh, who was not my client, who was doing it on his own, he sold out. And um, he hasn't gotten back in. He's missed out on this big rise, and, that, and that's what happens. It's, it only takes one, as you noted, one bad decision to undermine a, a long-term investment plan. And one last thing I wanted to draw out from the the study that Alex had mentioned that I think is worth noting um, is in the numbers, I forget the exact number that he provided, but it was the accumulation of assets. And, and what popped in my head when you said that is, I think so many people, when they think about professional advice, think about stock picking. And sure, I mean, picking the right investments, a big part of it, can't, you know, can't downplay that. But there's so much more to it than just stock picking or investment choo- you know p- choosing um and in our, our research has has been similar in that ha- it's it's not just the returns that you earn but it's how effective of an investor or saver you become or you know your or the behavior that you exhibit so i i think it, you know it's important to see the profession uh, not or not look at it too narrowly and, and understand that it is a lot broader and there are a lot of other ways um, that 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 professional service uh, can help and and it's not just you know what what you buy and what you sell it goes beyond that uh, and and I think that sort of comes out in the numbers of, of that study that Alex mentioned. Yes, I I will point out and Alexander can follow up uh, that communication is critical. So uh, clients, when left on their own, are going to start stewing in their own thoughts and will be influenced by everyone around them. Uh, Obviously, they don't speak to a professional on a daily basis, but we make it our practice to communicate with our clients once a week through a newsletter that uh, that, uh, I write. Personally, it's not uh, templated content from our corporation. So by virtue of having regular communication, clients do get my voice in their head on a, on a weekly basis and they have a better understanding of what's going on. So they don't necessarily need to worry about everything that's going on out there. Alex, you want to elaborate a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll actually piggyback off of something that you mentioned there, Corey, and that, you know, in, in being a successful investor is not the result of making one or two good uh, stock selections. 
the basis for becoming an excellent investor and accumulating a strong portfolio over a uh, over a lifetime is the result of many, many, you know, hundreds of of good decisions over the course of uh, of your lifetime. Whether that comes to, as my dad mentioned, uh, allocating your personal spending and uh, as well as combining it with the right selection of securities and the right times to enter and exit an investment. And so, you know, to uh, to bring it back to uh, a real life example, many people understand uh, in golf, uh, each of us is capable of hitting a good shot once in a while. The difference between us and the professionals is they can do it 65 to 72 times in uh, in a given round, whereas, you know, uh, we, we can make uh, one or two good shots periodically, but uh, there's often... Uh, a lot of mistakes and, and poor decision mixed in between. And so that's the difference between a, uh, a scratch golfer and uh, someone like myself who's shooting much <laughs> higher than uh, the par. Yeah. That analogy hits home for me as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think it will for, for a lot of people. We, we could all, many of us can sympathize with that, with that feeling of, of frustration when you, you feel like you're so close and you can do it. And then the humbling experience of, uh, of being so far away at the end of 18 holes. <laughs> I, th- I think every investor should become a golfer to, to learn, to learn uh, 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 modesty and their <laughs> behavior when it comes to investing, because it's just the, the sport has uh, such a way of humbling you uh, every time you play it. And uh, I, I think we, we all need to be humble when it comes to uh, investments and investment planning, retirement planning in general. Well, it sure does that. It sure, it sure does that. Well, gentlemen, I, I had a blast today. This was a great conversation. Uh, you know, like I said, here at Dalbar, we're we're very passionate about investor behavior and what it means within uh, within the industry and the profession. So, I thank you so very much for taking the time and sharing your experience and expertise with us today. Absolutely, thank you for having us on. Thank you, Corey. Thanks for listening. If you found this conversation valuable, please visit financelab.dalbar.com to connect with today's guest. We'll see you on our next episode of Finance Lab. 